G'day audience, how are we? It's Ross here yet again. So this week and over the next few weeks, I want to dive into all the different industries and subsectors, whatever you want to call them. And the reason I want to do that is because whenever you're looking at a new investment or a stock or whatever, it's good to put that company in the context of the industry because there are lots of little things you need to know about each industry that don't really get talked about on any place I've ever found otherwise we wouldn't be having this discussion Um, and those trends and common themes amongst different industries are really important to know so that you never get too shell-shocked and it can inform better decision making on your behalf. So This week, we're going to dive all into tech, which is, I'm sure, exciting to many of you. But before we dive into the tech industry, I just want to go over a very broad classification of all the stocks you would ever come across. And the classification I really like comes from Peter Lynch. And he's got five categories, essentially. And there's the fast growers, the medium growers, the slow growers. They're all pretty self-explanatory. But then there's another two which we haven't really talked about and they're called cyclicals and defensive. So let's start off with cyclicals. Cyclical companies are companies that sell discretionary items. And by discretionary items, I mean things that you want but you don't need. And the the reason they're called cyclicals is they run with what are called the economic cycles. So the economic cycles are just these natural cycles that occur on average around every 10 years for the last 100 years or so. And the economic cycle goes like this. We have some event which triggers a massive recession and we're going to start our story at the bottom of the recession. Okay, just like March of this year, we're at the bottom of the recession What happens slowly after you hit the bottom is there's government spending, there could be a whole range of factors, and people and the economy gradually improves. People get more confident, and over time, that confidence builds and builds and builds over a 10-year period, and so we've gone from the bottom of the recession where no one had any money, the banks were really tight with their lending, and the economy gradually builds um, into a point 10 years down the road where everyone's got lots of money, everything's looking really good. And then somewhere in those really good times, something will happen and it will trigger another recession event. And then we're at the bottom of a recession and everyone's really scared to spend and banks are really tight with money lending and slowly the economy improves over a 10 year period and it just goes over and over again. So this year it was a pandemic, which hopefully won't happen every 10 years. Uh, before that was the GFC in 2009, and before that was the tech bubble in 2000. So there's always something that causes these cycles. And so since cyclical companies sell discretionary items, when we're in a recession, everyone cuts. There's no jobs, people don't have a lot of money. The first thing they cut are these discretionary items. They don't go on holidays, they don't buy a new car, they don't buy a new RV, whatever. And so these cyclical companies get really badly hurt in a recession and a lot of the time or sometimes they go bankrupt. But then as the economy improves and people get more money and we get jobs back and confidence comes back about the economy, 
people have become more and more willing to spend on these items and these cyclical companies do better and better over time. So essentially, the cyclical companies are the worst investment right before a recession, but after we've hit rock bottom in the economy, they do the best. And so that's what we've seen over the last few months. We've seen investors go away from the tech stocks and they've started buying up these cyclical companies because they're seeing that the economy is improving. And so that will, that trend will continue. And so things like clothing, cars, anything discretionary, they do better as the economy improves and they do really badly when a recession first hits. So that's cyclicals. So the best time to buy these cyclicals, by the way, is essentially right now or over the past couple of months. <clears throat> the other group of stocks are the defensive stocks. And these defensive stocks are the opposite to the cyclicals. Defensive stocks or companies are companies that sell products that people will always need regardless of the economic backdrop. So these are things like groceries, household products, toilet paper, stuff you need no matter what. And so these companies will, even in a recession, they'll still do well. They won't do as well as in the good times, but they'll still do pretty well compared to everything else. And that's why they're called defensive, because they're a safe bet, even if a recession were to occur, these companies won't completely collapse. The, the problem with that is, these companies are usually really big companies that have been around for a really long time, and so they're very low growth. And so I guess the, the, the upside-downside situation here is that it, they don't have a lot of downside, they won't fall through the floor, but they also don't have a lot of upside. So I personally, I don't invest in these companies because I'm a bit younger, I can take a bit more risk and get a bit more reward for the next couple, for the next few decades. Whereas if you're a bit older or you just are a bit more conservative in nature, these are the kind of companies you should be investing in. They're nice, safe bets. They'll give you pretty mediocre returns, but they won't surprise you with massive collapses. And a really good example of this is Pfizer, which has only gone up about 20 or 30% over the last four years. And that includes the vaccine boost they've just gotten. And that's just because they sell so such stable home, household products and brands that they don't really grow much anymore. They're so well established, they've got no more upside. So those are the two big groups of stocks I wanted to talk about. Cyclicals, rise and fall with the economic cycle. Defensive stocks, not a lot of upside, but really minimal downside, so they're a nice safe bet. So that's enough of that. We're now going to dive into the much anticipated tech industry. So unfortunately at the moment, the tech all the tech companies are super expensive because COVID has accelerated this shift towards a more technological society. And so in, whenever investors get optimistic about something, they always get overly optimistic. And just looking at the environment at the moment, pretty much every tech stock I've looked at is pretty ridiculously priced. But the time will come where the tide will turn and there'll be an opportunity to get these guys for a reasonable price. The good thing about tech also is that a lot of them have are pretty small. They've got big, long-term, high-growth potential. So you can 
hold these companies for really long periods of time and get those really big, you know, 10 times your money kind of gains. The way I like to break up the tech industry is into these three groups and it won't cover every single tech company out there, but it can give you a good idea of how to look at the tech industry. And the way I split up the tech industry is the first group are the software as a service group. The second are online marketplaces and the third are AI driven companies. So first off are the software as a service company or the SaaS companies. And this is the current hype on Wall Street. They love this company. And essentially, these are companies that have created some kind of software that acts as a service. And they've spent a lot of money to build up this software. And now they just have to sell it. And every time they sell it, you know, they just essentially are giving access to their already built software to a new customer. So the cost after they've built the platform is relatively low. They just have to get the customers, give them access to the product that's already built. Boom, they've got access to it. The moat or the protection from competition that these companies have are switching costs, okay? It's a lot of effort and time to learn this specific software. And so the cost of changing to a totally new software in terms of, not only financial, but also time and effort is oftentimes so high that once you've got a customer, they'll just stay with you regardless if a cheaper one comes out or a better product comes out. So that's their protection from competition. So the the benefits of these software as a service companies are that, like I already said, the software is already built. So the cost of adding new customers is really low when you think about comparison to, say, a company that sells a physical good. Every time they sell a new product, they had to make it, distribute it, and then sell it. Whereas these software as a service companies just merely have to give access to their already built product, all online, minimal cost to them. It, And what this means is that new sales from new customers go straight to their free cash flow. Okay, because they don't have big costs every time they sell a new product to a new customer, all the money they get from this new customer goes straight into increasing their free cash flow. And so what you'll find is that these companies might early on have these really big losses, but as their sales grow, their free cash flow can swing from a big loss to a big gain in just a couple of years. And in general, they end up with free cash flow margins of around about 20%, which is really high. The other benefit of these software as a service companies is they're usually a subscription model. So the, the customer pays an annual fee to get access to it. And the reason investors like this is because it's reliable recurring revenue, okay? you It means the investors will never be surprised by a big drop in sales or anything like that because all the customers are on these monthly contracts that just keep on going over time. Now, the things I don't like about these companies are A, they need to spend a lot of money on research and development because they need to stay ahead of their competitors. Even though they might have some protection from competition, they still need to give a good product. The The main big th- issue I have with these companies which is a personal issue, is I find all of these companies 
in the software as a service space quite unsettling. And the reason for that is because you never know if or when a new software will come out and replace them. Because I know I said they have that switching protection from competition, but not all of them have it. And so if a new product were to come out out of nowhere and replace them, your company can just completely collapse. And the really good example of this is what Zoom did to Skype. Skype was, in in quotation marks, the leader in this space for a long time. And then out of the absolute blue, Zoom came along and just absolutely crushed them. And so that's what I personally find a bit unsettling about this little space in tech is that you never really know when a new replacement is going to come out and just completely steal all the customers of the existing one. And a lot of investors don't worry about this, but I do. So yeah, some examples of the software as a service companies are Zoom, Slack, and DocuSign. DocuSign is a great example of a stereotypical software as a service company. They essentially give you software so that you can um, sign for documents online. And so if you're a law firm or whatever, you can just send the document by email and you can just sign, they can just sign it online and it automatically gets integrated in and boom, you're done. So those are the software as a service companies. The next kind of group in tech are online marketplaces. And these were quite underappreciated up until COVID hit. And now they're all at skyrocketing highs, which is unfortunate. But keep an eye on this space because I, I, I think this is one of the best parts of tech. So when I say online marketplace, I mean, it's just a platform that connects buyers and sellers. And every single platform model has the same way of making money. They take a percentage cut of every transaction done on their platform. Okay, it's not the same as an online retailer, which sells products that it buys, it buys or makes products and then sells them online. These platforms don't sell a product. They simply bring the buyers and the sellers together, just like Airbnb. You want to book an Airbnb, you go onto their platform because that's where you'll have the biggest variety. And when you make your booking, Airbnb takes a cut from you. And when the person who's receiving the money receives that money, Airbnb takes a cut from there as well. So it's a really lucrative business. And the other reason I really love it is because their protection from competition is network effects, okay? The network effect at here is simply you have an online platform, the more buyers you have, that will attract more sellers onto that marketplace because they want as many potential buyers as they can. And the more sellers you have on your marketplace, the more buyers that will come in because they want the biggest variety to choose from. And so you get these crazy network effects which lead to one company absolutely dominating that particular marketplace type. The thing you need to know here is when you're investing in the online marketplaces, you need to invest in the market leader. You need to invest in whatever marketplace is currently leading that space because there'll always be a few competitors. And the reason you invest in the market leader is because those network effects will be strongest for the market leader because the market leader already has the most buyers and the most sellers and those sellers will attract more buyers and those buyers will attract, those more buyers will attract those more sellers. I know my English is poor here. 
And so the network effects will act strongest for the market leader. So that's what you need to know. So the pros, what are the benefits of online marketplaces? They're similar to the software companies in that the only expenses they really have are just running the platform. So new customers come at little extra cost to the business, okay? It doesn't cost them that much more to add a new listing from a new person putting up their rental and it doesn't cost them a lot of money to bring in a new customer to start using their platform. And what that means is just like with the software companies is that because you've got more sales coming in and that extra customer doesn't cost you a lot of money, those extra sales lead to massive improvements on your free cash flow. And so like with the software companies, you'll find early in their history, they have these big losses, but these big free cash flow negative losses, but as their sales increase, the free cash flow will disproportionately increase and you can swing from a big loss to a big gain in just a few years. And the other big thing I like about the online marketplaces are the network effects. They're super strong. They lead to massive long-term growth and it just leads to one company dominating the space. And it becomes really hard for a competitor to take that position because once you've got that platform and you've got all the buyers and sellers using your platform, it's really hard for them to all move on to a completely new platform. Like why would they? No one's going to replace Airbnb even if they had a $50 billion to do it. They just can't. The only thing to be weary of with these online marketplaces are ones which Amazon is competing with. And this might sound not that important at the moment, but as you dive into it, you'll learn that Amazon is just this behemoth and any little online industry it goes into, it usually does really well. So just make sure that your online marketplace isn't somehow competing with Amazon and you can just look that up on Google, it'll come up. So good examples of these online marketplaces I'm talking about are Etsy for craft goods, Airbnb for your, you know, hotels and stuff, Fiverr and Upwork, they're really, they're the leading marketplaces for gigs, gig for the whole gig economy, so check those out and if you're Australian, you'll know all about realestate.com and if you're in America, you'll know about Zillow, which essentially just dominate the online real estate market. So that's online marketplaces. They're probably my favorite part of tech. Now, the third little subsector of tech is AI. So I'm sure a lot of you know a lot about AI and you've heard lots of different things about it. It just stands for artificial intelligence. And essentially, when I say AI companies here, I just mean companies that use AI in some way, shape or form to drive their business. And the reason AI is really good is because it leads to a network effect of data. So AI is essentially you put data into it and it can make judgments, decisions by analyzing that data. The more data you put into it, the more accurate your decisions come out from the AI machine. So what happens is, is if you're a company and you're using AI you get a bunch of data, your AI gets better. As you get more data, the AI gets even better. And so eventually you end up with the most data. And if you have the most data, you make the best decisions. Your AI machine will be the best, the most accurate. And so it leads to kind of a network effect 
where you have a bunch of customers who put data in and the data machine gets more accurate, that increased accuracy attracts more people to your platform, which makes the, the AI machine even smarter and better, which attracts more customers to use your product, which makes the AI smarter, and it just goes on and on until you're just the absolute dominator in this space. And the classic example of this is Google Search. It has the best search results because it's been feeding that AI machine for so long. Google Maps, always, for me personally, Google Maps always gets me from A to B in the quickest and best way, and that's because it has the most data coming in. That leads me to get the most accurate map to my destination, and that makes me want to use its platform more, which gives it more data, and it makes my maps more accurate, and it just keeps on going. And so it's a really strong network effect from the data driven by the AI. So just like with the online marketplaces and essentially any network effect, whenever you've got a network effect working, you want to invest in the market leader because the network effects will always be the strongest for whoever's the leader in the market. Whoever's got the most data is going to have the most accurate results and therefore the best product, which is going to attract more, more customers, which is going to feed its data machine even more, gives a better product and so on and so forth. So the only, I guess, issue with investing in companies that use AI is it's not always easy to know who's the market leader, especially now because AI is sort of still in its early days. It might be hard for you to go, oh, who's got the best AI right now in insurance? It's going to be pretty hard for you to know. So unless you can clearly define who's the market leader, and a bit of research will tell you that, then it's hard to know which one to invest in. So a really good example that exists at the moment is Lemonade. So Lemonade is this company that sells insurance and it sells insurance through its AI machine. And that's probably the only AI kind of company that I can find at the moment on the market, but you can see how it would the network effects would work here. It's got it's the market leader in using AI in insurance. So it's got the most data, which gives it the best results. And that attracts more customers. And in this instance, when I say best results, it offers the best deals on insurance. So it's got the best prices and it makes the most accurate decisions in terms of the riskiness of this specific customer. And so it's got the most data, it's got the most it gives out the best insurance deals, which is going to attract more customers, which are going to feed it more data, which is going to allow it to make even better deals. And the cycle will just go on and on and on. So those are the three main areas of tech. That's how I look at technology space. Those are the three areas that I think are the most attractive. There are a bunch of other technology companies out there, but these, the rest of the technology space are pretty much just companies which take an existing product and sell it using technology. So Netflix is pretty much cable TV sold through the internet. And so while these companies may be called technology companies, they aren't really. Netflix isn't really a technology company. It's actually a media company. It's a film and TV company. It produces content just like Disney, just like any other film studio out there. So with the rest of tech, there's not that much to talk about. Just try and find out 
what that tech company actually does at its roots and not what Yahoo Finance or whatever tells you it is. The last thing I want to talk about with these with tech is whenever you're valuing these companies, the because they're all kind of small, younger companies with high growth, you need to value them using the discounted cash flow analysis, which is that scaffold we talked about weeks ago. And the way I would value these tech companies is pretty much, if we remember the main step in the discounted cash flow analysis is to find out what sales will the company have in 10 years time when it's fully mature. And for a lot of these tech companies, they work on a user-based system. So to value that, to find out the sales this company will achieve in 10 years time, I would find, I'd have to try and estimate how many people are going to use this product or service. And I would multiply that by the average amount each user spends on the platform. And then you can go from there. That will be how you value all of these tech companies. And then once we find out the sales they achieve in 10 years, you then have to find the margin and the sales to capital ratio, which you can find at NYU Stern, which is all on my website. Just go through there and it will all make sense. So that's it for tech. I did have a listener question this week. And the reason I reached out or connected with this listener is because they sent me their Spotify unwrapped for the year. And I was their number one podcast. So I told him as a thank you, I would answer one of their questions. And pretty unsurprisingly, the question was about crypto. Um, no, no shame to people who are into crypto. It's not a stab at anything. But here's my perspective of crypto. There's a few rules that I like to go by to make sure I never make any fatal mistakes. And the first thing is not to invest in something I don't understand. And the reason you don't invest in something you don't understand is because you're pretty much flying blind. You won't know when that, if you invest in something you don't understand, you don't know what things are a risk to that product. So if we're going to take Bitcoin, for example, if you don't, if you haven't really thought about Bitcoin, you might not realize that the, there's another crypto out there that actually is better in some way, shape or form, or if you're investing in Bitcoin, you might not realize that there's these massive legal ramifications or there could be all this government reform around the world against it or whatever. But essentially, when you invest in something you don't know and you're flying blind, you really won't know until it hits you. You won't know this fatal mistake you've made until it's too late and you see your stock collapse. So that's the first thing I don't like about crypto. And I don't understand crypto. I I tried and it makes absolutely no sense to me. And another thing about crypto is a lot of people's rationale for it is, oh, you have to invest in it because more people are just going to use it over time. But that shows that you don't understand how crypto actually works because it's not a supply demand thing because there are so many cryptos out there and there are so many cryptos that go from that skyrocket and they go to zero and they just wiped off the face of the market. So there's obviously all these other nuances at play here. And maybe the only reason Bitcoin is doing so well is because it's the one everyone knows about. And in which case, when you buy Bitcoin and everyone's buying Bitcoin because it's all they know about, it's the only crypto they know about, 
you're pretty much buying it in the hope that someone else will pay you more for it when you want to sell it, which is essentially trading. There's no analysis of the fundamentals. There's no valuation. There's no flaw in these cryptos. And so it's essentially blind trading and which is essentially gambling. So that's how I feel about crypto. The other thing is the fact that there's millions of different cryptocurrencies out there means that there's no protection from competition. There's nothing that really differentiates them. And the only reason Bitcoin is differentiated is because everyone knows it and because it was early on. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if crypto were to take a hold and become this important part of society in the future, that Bitcoin would be the best bet. And the reason we don't know that Bitcoin will be the best bet is because no one out there investing in crypto actually understands how it works. If you do understand how it works, go for it. Invest wholeheartedly. If you can fully rationalize how cryptocurrency works, go for it. I personally, I don't, so I'm not going to invest in it. The other thing about crypto is that it's a currency. So when I think about investing in Bitcoin, I ask myself, would I invest in US dollars? No, it's a currency. It's, it's, it's only worth as much as the next person's willing to pay for it. But at least the US dollar has some kind of backing in the US economy. You know, the US dollar goes up when the US economy is doing well and it goes down in the opposite direction. But when it comes to crypto, there's no underlying backing. There's no way to know what Bitcoin's actually worth by any kind of measure. And so for those reasons, I don't invest in crypto and I would probably heavily recommend not. I know Bitcoin has had a really fantastic run over the last few months, but people forget that it's only just reached a level that it was at in 2017. So if you were unfortunate enough to buy crypto at its top three years ago, you would have just broke even. And those are the things that people don't really talk about. And they f- happens everywhere. You f- You forget about these important principles until it's too late. Just like the Chinese electric vehicle companies who had these huge runs over the last few months and now they're really starting to collapse. You never know until it's too late and for those reasons, I don't like crypto. That does it for this week. Next week, we're going to start diving into all the different industries and it'll probably take us about two to three weeks, but stay in tune because it will be really helpful when looking at a company to kind of know what to expect from that industry. All right, guys, see you next week. Bye.